Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jackie Combs is a flat-out great journalist. She's been at it for uh, many years, uh, starting at small papers in Texas, uh, working her way up uh, to 18 years at the Wall Street Journal and another eight at the New York Times as one of uh, the most respected writers on politics and government in Washington. Jackie has extraordinary insights into that town and also the working-class neighborhoods in which she grew up and which she's covered, as you'll hear in this conversation. Jackie Combs, always good to welcome a daughter of the Midwest to, uh, to the Axe Files. Great to be here. And, and to the Institute of Politics. You're one of the preeminent journalists in the country. But before we get to that, I just want to talk to how you became, to you about how you became one of the preeminent journalists <laughs> in the country, because it wasn't, it wasn't uh, fated by your upbringing in Toledo, no. Ohio. No, not at all. Um, I didn't know any journalists um, or how to do it. But, you know, I'm, you and I are about the same age, and I there's a lot of people who, when I started journalism, because of the time it was, I started college after, well, Watergate was going on while I was in You just college. had Carl Bernstein on the podcast uh, talking about those days. And, um, you know, I was one like you, mm-hmm. uh, probably one of those people who were inspired to journalism uh, by what Woodward and Bernstein yeah. did in their time. Well, see, and people assume that of me, but I wasn't inspired by them. They validated the decision I'd already made, and but let's back up a second. Why did you make that? You tell talk a little bit about your family because there were there wasn't yeah. a family of journalists. No, no, no. And in fact, it's not even a family of college graduates. But for my father, who's been long dead, but he was a man of his generation. He had been a veteran of the uh, World War, end of World War II and Korea. And in that way, this farm boy from Northwest Ohio got to go to college through the GI Bill. So he got a degree in business from Ohio University. And um, like a lot of his generation, was also very well read. And it was a time when, as you remember, cities had multiple newspapers, even a city as relatively small as Toledo, had two newspapers. We had the Blade. We had the morning Toledo Times, and we had the afternoon Toledo Blade. And my father got both of them. And it was just, I picked up, you know, I started with the comics, and I moved on. And I always, reading newspapers was always part of my life. And as I got a little older, I thought, and my father had died by then. Yeah, let me ask you about that before we go Mm -hmm. on. He died, at you were relatively young. Yes, unfortunately. Um, but fortunately for me, I was older than my siblings. What would happen, so I, if I can ask? He, I, I lost my dad at a very early age, too. Yeah. So, Well, he, um, I knew from the earliest age that he wasn't completely healthy. He had very high blood pressure. It was just a fact of life. And so I sort of lived with a sense of his mortality. And there was a time in October of 65, he had a mild heart attack. He was 39 years old. And he went into the hospital. And at the same time, my mother went into the hospital for a, um, she was having trouble with her pregnancy at that time. Hmm. So both of my parents were in the oh, hospital. My. It was a mild heart attack. It was a mild problem. You were the oldest kid. And right? I was the oldest. How so many... I was, ele- I was at that point, I just turned 11. Yeah. And I was home babysitting what were then three other children. 
And she, you know, they didn't even think of calling a babysitter. It was just something I did. So anyway, that we got past that. But the following April, at Easter time, I remember, because of my father, one of the last things I remember about him is that Easter Sunday had come, and he was a treasury agent, worked for the IRS in Toledo. And the government had just minted these... Um, 50-cent pieces with John F. Kennedy's picture after the assassination. And he brought home, they hadn't even been in circulation widely yet, and for Easter he gave each of us three older children, not the tot at that point. There was a uh, two-year-old, and then my mother later would have another baby. Um, So he gave us those 50-cent pieces. And I tell you, when I realized I'd lost that 50-cent piece later, Mm. it was one of the saddest things in my life. So he, um, but he... He got sick right after Easter, and by that Friday, he was in the hospital, and on Saturday morning was dead of a cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, my. So it was really happened pretty fast, but Were my mother— uh, Were you—how did you find out the news? Because I had to babysit. <laughs> my mother um, was at the hospital and came home on Friday night. I was babysitting for the other kids, and she said I might have to get up in the middle of the night— um, so if you if you wake up and I'm gone, it's I've had to go back to the hospital. And sure enough, the phone rang about 5.30 a.m., and she went to the hospital, but she didn't get there in time, and so my father had passed. She was nine months pregnant, so mm. a week later she had my sister Connie, which really, I mean— it gave us some it gave us kids something to focus on. And uh, but I, you know, my father, um, so what I started to say was that fortunately for me, I was old enough that I remember him. I remembered him very well. I think I have more memories than I should for having been 11. But my siblings, who were at the time, my sister was 10, my brother just turned 8, um, another sister was 2, and then, of course, Connie newborn, was a newborn. Yeah. They have no, next to no memories, and they really... Um, they uh, envy me. But chief among those memories, I think, he used to tell me all the time, you're going to go to college. And I was a girl, a little girl playing with Barbies and Kens, and I thought I was just going to grow up and get married. And I'd probably dropped that idea by age 11, but um, nothing against getting married, and I would get married, but Mm -hmm. I I worked too. So I... um, I was bound to go to college because I knew that's what he wanted. But my siblings didn't have that um, memory or or influence. And it really drove home to me at a young age just how important it is for children to have that influence of adults in their lives, Mm -hmm. even if it's not their parents and people around them. And you think how many children don't have that? Well, we we just... uh we talked to J.D. Vance, who was here at the IOP. I think you were in the audience. Yes. And, um, you know, his whole story is is about that and about the sort of the, the, the family when the family is disrupted right. and continually disrupted in the absence of a father figure. You know, his grandfather filled that for right. him. But how, uh, how impactful yeah. uh, that is. How, how, how hard was it for you at 11 to lose your dad and how did it change your life oh it's it is i've I've said to close friends it is the single fact that if you if you want to know what makes me tick it's the single fact you need to know um you know he was a very strict father but i loved him i don't know how my life would be different had he lived I know my siblings would have been different, and that's not an indictment of my mother at all. I mean, my mother's great, too, and fortunately at 83, she's still alive and very well. We had a family wedding recently where uh, we have video of her dancing, and all the uh, young men rush out on the floor to dance with Jean. (laughs) But um, uh, my father... um, it's just such a good influence. And so after there were a couple things that, I, that stuck with me, and I didn't even realize this until later, but I was so intent on not adding to my mother's woes that all I did was focus on, or my main, I focused on making her life easier by helping with the kids. She likes to say that she doesn't think she changed any diapers for her youngest child because my sister Pat and I did it all. 
And, um, and the other thing was keeping my, you know, hiding my grief. I never wanted her to catch me crying. That's tough for a kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I don't want to suggest that I'm somehow um, uh, scarred by that, but I really do think, you know, if the same thing had happened to my children, um, I probably would have had them, to lose a parent at that age, I would have had them go see a therapist just to talk, to have somebody to talk to. Um, but on the other hand, you, you suggest that um, that what you did with your life was influenced Oh, by yeah. by him, right? So the the interest in news and newspapers and that was obviously yeah. something that he inculcated in you, right? And and I knew I liked to read a lot, and what I read was histories and biographies, and I liked biographies especially because it was about other people's lives, and it could take me away from my own. Not that I was escaping my own, but just you know, just take Abraham Lincoln. If somebody like that could make something of himself and become what he did, then I felt like I didn't have a hard life. I, I Really, for what I'm saying, I didn't think I had a hard life. My mother, thanks to benefits like Social Security survivor benefits, civil service, because um, uh, my father was a government employee, and his um, some of his military benefits, she she didn't have to go to work. She was able to stay home with all five children. And we were very happy. We had a great neighborhood, lower middle class. Uh, and um, so I didn't, um, I wasn't trying to escape in my reading, but I thought, but I always had this sense that in America you could do anything. And even though this was the 60s and really the women's liberation movement hadn't really taken hold yet, I never felt like being a woman held me back either because my father treated me like it was given that I was going to do something. So I just, you know, put one foot in front of the other and just didn't think about what the um, hurdles would be. The uh, uh, You tweeted, I think, when Mary Tyler Moore died, that oh, she yeah. was uh, she was a positive influence. Um, how, how so? Well, all the way down to how I decorated my first apartment. Oh, is that right? <laughs> That's serious. Oh, God. Talk to any girls of a certain age, or women of a certain age. And yeah. Now, did you s- a str- strategically position an ottoman so people would trip over it? Yeah, they- you know, those were the years of a lot of avocado green and orange and <laughs> yellow and um, macrame and pl- a lot of plants. and. Um, so, yeah, Mary, T- I mean, that was one of those things. You You just don't know at the time. And I didn't realize it till later, just what a powerful symbol that is to see somebody like Mary Tyler Moore, which was such a funny, fun show. And she was this woman in a newsroom, in a newsroom. And, you know, there was no overt um, sort of political message to it. It just was. And it suggested matter of factly that this was possible. So, yeah, I mean. I think I said that tweet you referred to, I think I said something about, I don't mind saying, but, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not ashamed to say uh, that, yeah, Mar- Mary Tyler Moore in um, that character was a role model for me. Kind of uh, interesting when she died, you know, that it, it was really an impactful thing. I mean, yeah. and for that reason. Yeah. And I never really, you know, and I, I was probably obtuse about it. Yeah. I never realized at the time that this was a significant social right. event. You know, you know, and I don't know that I realized it at the time either. I just, I realized by that point in our history, you know, the 70s, that I think this show was on from roughly 70 to 77. Yeah. I mean, we realized society was changing, um, you know. Uh, so I knew, and, and again, I'm, by the time the show went off the air, I had started college and I was a journalism major and um and again i was i think i had decided on the career before she that show came on mm-hmm. but again like woodward and bernstein it validated things for me and, and at bottom i went into journalism because i did like history and politics and biography and i wanted to see it for myself i liked to write and i couldn't afford more than 4 years or so of college so i thought journalism was the way to get paid to do that and you but you did go to on to graduate school here yeah. in, in Chicago at at Northwestern. Well, that was sort of unplanned. What happened was I started at Northwestern 
I, I liked my high school in, in in central Toledo, but it wasn't. It was a, I went to Catholic high school, and it was a good school, but it was lacking. And for instance, I went in one day. You know, I'm just amazed when I having raised two daughters and to see the resources they got from a public school in D.C. in high school, the help they got in um, counseling for college. I went into this office where the alleged counselor was doubled as the attendance taker, and I went in one day. Whereas the president would say the so-called counselor. (laughs) Yes, and she was a so-called counselor. I went in and asked, I said, I need some advice on how to uh, choose a college, and she pointed her fat arm up in the air towards a (laughs) shelf, and she No bitterness here at all. And she pointed to the what was called the Barron's Guide to Colleges and Universities, and I literally threw it open, and Northwestern University came. No kidding. Yes. And which, as wow. you, you know, is one of the preeminent journalism yeah. schools in the country. What I didn't appreciate is it's also a private school, and I did get some financial aid, but it wasn't enough. And so not having... And with my father being dead, I didn't have um, any adult supervision. <laughs> and I budgeted myself, but I didn't – you can't appreciate at 17 what it's going to cost you to be away at college. And so after a year, I came back home to Toledo and graduated from the University of Toledo Night School with a g- degree in journalism. But the problem was, as you know, as a former journalist – you need clips, or if you wanted to be a newspaper reporter, you needed what we called news clips of something you to show would-be employers that you could write a story and report a story. So what I did was I saw a Northwestern I knew had a master's degree program that um, would only take me one academic year, and I thought I can go one year into debt for one year, and I'll have a master's degree, and Northwestern had a great program where you would spend a quarter in Washington which I did, and I was assigned to three newspapers. The main one was a paper to cover Congress for them, to cover Washington and Congress. And the main one I worked for was um, a paper then called the South Mississippi Sun, which covered the Mississippi coast. And that was night, the winter of 78, and I met and became familiar with for the rest of my career with a number of Mississippi Republicans who um, are still around today, one of whom the local congressman was Trent Lott, who Mm -hmm. by the time I got back to Washington would be the Senate Majority Leader eventually, Thad Cochran, Senator from Mississippi, who's still there, Chairman of the Appropriations Committee, and a number of others who were committee chairmen because Southerners, as you know, they used to – They stick around. When Democrats were – in control of the South, they would vote for the same people over and over. And they were there so many years that most Senate committee chairmen were uh, were Democrats, Democrat. no. now, now, Republi- now Republicans. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so through your internship, you I made these clips. lifelong yes. source relationships. Yes. And clips. Yeah. And, you know, the, mis- the Mississippians. This is, a, we should point out, you know, because... Uh, at the Institute of Politics, we we have a really robust internship program. Yeah. But internships, I mean, that's oh, how I got my absolutely. start. Internships are uh, indispensable. Right. And that's the other reason I had to, after I graduated from University of Toledo, which I might add, did a great job. But, you know, life isn't fair. And so having a bachelor's degree from the University of Toledo wasn't going to get me very far or at least not nearly as far as having a degree from Northwestern University in journalism. So you took these clips and yes. you, and you went to Texas and the internship because I didn't get an internship at the uh, in Toledo because I was going to night school and working right. during the day. Um, so yes, and I got the recruiter came up to Evanston, Illinois, and um, he uh, said he had an opening for a paper in Abilene, Texas. They so had fourteen papers in this chain from. Corpus Christi, Wichita Falls, San Angelo, 14 of them. And Abilene was his opening. Texas is big. It's very big. And I learned that the hard way. (laughs) And um, although I've now been to all 254 counties, um, Abilene he described as a city of 100,000 people with three colleges. So I'm going, yes, college town. You know, I'm this Irish Catholic girl who had already at a young age liked my beer pretty well and played pool and bowled. 
none of which was in Abilene, because what I didn't know, but was with great education, is that these three colleges were all Christian colleges. And um, not only that, but Abilene was a dry town. And I had gone to college in Evanston, which, as you know, was formerly way back in Prohibition, the home of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. I thought being wet and dry was a a historic artifact (laughs) that went out the window when Prohibition did. Little did I know that I'd moved to a town that was dry. But the good part was they had just voted to go wet, and I was assigned the story, my very first story, to go to commissioner's court where they were going to just canvas the vote, which was the pro forma act that would make it the city law. The problem was I got there on Monday morning prepared to call in my story of what we thought was going to be the last step in this, and the judge threw out a precinct box, which overturned the results of the election. (laughs) He was, as they say, in the pocket of the Baptists. (laughs) And so for the rest— As a Chicagoan, I am shocked by these things, so I— I, I can't believe that would happen. Yeah, and I still, his, uh, I remember his name to this day, but ultimately it became a national story. It was exciting for me because these national television networks, back when networks were still a big deal, came to town and they were asking for my help in covering the story. And then finally— still hard to get a beer, though. Yeah, you had to pay. You had to be a member of a club. It was yeah. all very hypocritical. Yes. But. Listen, before I want to just take a quick break, and we'll be back with Jackie Combs. So that was your first story, uh, and uh, as is the case at all these smaller newspapers, you probably got a chance to do lots of stuff there. Well, you know, that's why I went. Some of my friends at Northwestern were still jobless at this point because they were waiting for Newsweek or CBS or, you know, New York Times to call, and I had student loans to pay, so I needed a job right away. And I did want to go someplace new. I'd never been out of Ohio and Michigan. Texas was certainly new to me. And um, I got to do all sorts of stories, including laying out um, stories on the page. And I I even did some sports stories, went to uh, um, Dallas-Fort Worth to cover Rangers games or help cover Rangers games. You... uh was it not at all daunting? I mean, I know you you got the Mary Tyler Moore thing going here, but <laughs> wasn't it at all daunting to uh, Texas is a West Texas yeah. is a is a is a different kind of place. Oh yeah, but I I always it was so such, you didn't go down there with apprehension. I I really did. In fact, my stepbrother drove me there in his van, and I I have to admit I cried when he drove away, leaving me all alone. Partly because, you know, he had been with me when we stopped on the highway to get a case of beer. And we're, that was when I first learned that Ab- I was heading towards a town that was dry. And um, so, uh, yeah, it was. But, you know, and it's one of those things like when I left Abilene, my coworkers gave, and gave me a, sh- a shirt that said, happiness is seeing Abilene in your rearview mirror. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it was such a good experience. Yeah. That- yeah, what the kinds stories. of what kinds what kinds of stories did you do beyond the uh, the one you described? All right. Well, first I'll tell you what, like one of the ridiculous. They, they love these stories where, you know, the the you know the editors who like to take a, in these smaller towns who like to take something that's happened a national story and localize yeah. it as they mm-hmm. say. So this um, one time, this uh, I don't know if I should tell you this, David, on the just, air. Just you and me. Okay. Um, this. Uh, some balloon. Uh, some guys had gone up in a uh, balloon from hot guys from New Mexico, mm-hmm. hot air balloon, and they were going. They crossed the Atlantic and landed in Paris, and they were trying to duplicate the flight back in uh, what was it, the thirties of Lindbergh mm-hmm. flying from uh, from the U.S. to France, Paris yeah. to France. And so this city editor had this idea that at Dias Air Force Base outside Abilene, there would be this. The, the, she knew there was this really old. Uh, Air Force veteran still alive, and she had somehow knew that he had been in Paris when Lindbergh landed. And first I'm thinking, the guy's got to be dead, but he wasn't dead. And so I did call him up, and I was really trying to evoke from him, what was it like to witness that? Um, And he said, finally, just said, 
I don't know. It just seemed to me like an old Jew showing off. (laughs) I walk over to the city editor and I said, okay, here's what he said. Do you want a story? No, she didn't want a story. Her other story was a five-legged goat, which sounds like a dirty joke. Yes. (laughs) But she wanted to find out whatever happened to the five-legged goat. Well, it died and its owner, it was stuffed and put in a museum of, you know, of weird things in san antonio and i said i'd ha- i'd love to go to san antonio and write about you know take pictures and write about this <laughs> this stuffed goat what is now a stuffed goat um, and, and get a beer <laughs> yeah <laughs> margarita probably yes. and uh she said no they didn't have the money for it but then i got but i had these other big stories not just the wet dry election but i got to cover elections and if you think back david 1978 which is when this was was really the first election that um, signaled two years before Ronald Reagan would get elected. Yes, that the South was shifting to Republicans, and um, and it we had we elected a Republican governor that year, which I didn't have a big role to play in as a reporter covering it. But pretty earth shaking, though, given the history of Texas. Right, right, and I had come, you know, when I arrived, so it was. I was saw firsthand sort of the realignment of the South in the five. There was or six a congressional years. race going on in seventy eight that yes. you uh, nearby you there too. Who was the candidate there? Well, the the home district was uh, a guy named um, Charlie Stenholm, who was mm-hmm. a conservative Democrat and would remain a Democrat. But I remember distinctly on election night that the bottom of my story about Stenholm's election, I added a few paragraphs which said something like. And in the neighboring district, district, congressional district to the big country, which is what we called the Abilene area, <laughs> um, uh, as expected, State Senator Kent Hance, the Democrat, defeated the Republican George W. Bush for the empty congressional seat there. But Bush did better than expected. And uh, in retrospect, we see that was a sign of things to come. Did you ever run across Bush as a candidate? I didn't run across him as a candidate. I would run across him in 1980 during the um, presidential election that year in Texas because by that point his father, during the point where his father had was no longer um, challenging uh, Reagan for the nomination but was his running mate. And so the Bush boys, uh, led by George W., would uh, did a couple political events and I met him at those. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you grew up in Toledo. You described it as uh, uh, as a, a low, lower middle class, kind of working class, typical work, Midwestern mm-hmm. working class. Never you covered West Texas. Uh, did you see when the results came in this year mm-hmm. uh, from Ohio and certainly from Texas and so on? Uh, did it make sense to you? Did you could, did you understand those votes? Because there are a lot of part of what happened. It seems to me that the media kind of there is a sort of elite lens through which right. the media views these elections, and there's this sort of right. incredulousness that Donald Trump uh, could win. But he spoke uh, pretty powerfully to some of those voters who felt disdained and yeah. neglected. You know, I, I definitely I'm. I know I, I was saying this before the election, but I definitely understood the support where Trump was getting his support. I wasn't surprised that Ohio went for him. I was surprised Michigan did. I'll admit to that. You know, and Toledo, you know, is right on the border with Michigan. So a lot of times our vantage was more oriented in that direction. Um, because, you know, I have seen in, when I was a child, everything seemed to be going great. Detroit was this sort of um, big city nirvana. It's where we went, uh, or at least my aunts did, to go shopping for really special things. And it was it was um, place that my our school would take school trips to to do things. And then by the time by the seventies, Detroit and Toledo, well, you had the riots of the late sixties, mm-hmm. and then the economy is you know the competition for autos with these were manufacturing they were manufacturing jobs and they and my father was you know i didn't know a lot of other people who had gone to college like he had and none of my um uh 
friend's father, very few of my friend's fathers had been to college. And so then, so a lot of the guys in my high school were, um, very few went on to college or at least graduated from college. And they expected they would have the same kind of jobs their dads did in the, you know, Jeep plant, the auto parts plants, and, you know, uh, the other, uh, everything was seemed to be related to auto manufacturing. Um, and they didn't get those jobs. And there, there was a point, I remember being at a high school reunion, um, 10 or 15 years ago, where it seemed like I talked to a couple people, a couple of my old guy friends, and it seemed like they'd been laid off more of their adult life than they'd worked. And so there was a lot. So this promise that I we grew up with wasn't there when we came of age uh, for a lot of those people who hadn't gone on to get a higher education, which was a lot of them. And, um, and then over the years, it just didn't, uh, you know, there were ups and downs. But uh, mainly Toledo got better by, um, like a lot of cities in, in the Rust, so-called Rust Belt, which I hate to use that phrase, uh, and rarely do anymore, but they, they just, they got smaller and they made do with what they had, whether through, you know, new, um, industries, but they usually were automated ones that used fewer jobs. Right. And required more skills. And more skills. And, um, and, you know, in the healthcare industry, a lot of people, that was the growth industry, just as it is in a lot of other places, like Pittsburgh. And- yeah, yeah. But so, so you you could see where uh, Trump would be striking a chord with right. with some of your old classmates and friends and family. You know, absolutely. And he, even though he seemed to represent, you know, here's this billionaire from New York City. Uh, that they're relating to. And it's, I think that there's an element, I don't think there's an element, I know there's an element of, well, he's successful. He's um, at everything he's done, you know, and they don't disregard the bankruptcies and the like, but uh, they think he, let's give him a chance. Nothing else seems to have worked. And um, it's interesting. I just, uh, it'll and be the, interesting the sort of, how much know, they demand Some of the things deliver. that he gets ridiculed for, um, and I've done some of it. Yeah. Uh, the some of the um, some of the the tweets and the comments and so on. Um, it, there is a sort of uh, anti political correctness right. uh, view. Oh yeah, and and an anti elitist, and and you know Hillary Clinton. I knew early on just looking, you know, and talking to people in Northwest Ohio that. There was, at best, a lack of enthusiasm for her, and at worst, just a rejection. Why? She was, she was just seen as, you know, uh, establishment, and um, you know, at you know better than anyone how the appeal of change. And she was just as in two thousand eight, she was not change, and. And then there was this sense that all they heard about, she just, her message was drowned out by talk of the emails, uh, her private server as Secretary of State, her speeches to, uh, for which she got large sums of money to the likes of Goldman Sachs. And, you know, it just seemed to, if, if they themselves, people would cite those. And if they, but they'd, if they didn't think it was all that bad, it just sort of seemed to feed a sense of um, her. Uh, sense of entitlement that the rules didn't apply to her, and 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 it, you know, it simply drowned out her message of what she was trying to say. Otherwise, it, it's, it, and the the I, I I I think you're right. I also think there's an element of, and I've said this before. The message of the campaign was, uh, we've got young people, we've got minorities, right. we've got right. women, so we don't really need you guys. Yeah. Right. And that message was heard loud and clear, and Trump. Mind it, the thing about skirting the rules yeah. is so interesting, though, because you look at Donald Trump, and he kind of made a lifetime of skirting rules and taking right. advantage of loopholes and, uh, right. uh, you know, you mentioned the bankruptcies and so on, but he, he got a pass on that. Yeah. She got none. How much of it has to do, you've written, you did a fellowship at the Shorenstein Center, mm-hmm. and you've you've studied and you've written about conservative uh, media and the the sort of mm-hmm. conservative uh, infotainment 
network out there and so on. How much uh, did she suffer because that is a very powerful source of information in places like uh, 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 Ohio and mm-hmm. and working class Ohio, West Texas and elsewhere? I think she's suffered a lot, but it wasn't unique to this campaign. This has been a process that has been underway, this um, sort of uh, the rise of conservative media has, as I see it, the history goes back to pre-World War II, but what I'm what I'm seeing now is just the past 20 years and with the rise of the Internet, the expansion of conservative media so that it's less, you know, it used to be a highly intellectual thing like National Review and Human Events where conservative principles were written about and in rejection of what they considered as the mainstream um, media that uh, – traditional media that mm-hmm. didn't really cover conservatism. But now it's it's a more populist conservatism that that Donald Trump has come to reflect, and it's uh, with the internet you had this proliferation of these websites like Breitbart, which is now familiar to people because of Steve Bannon having. Um, yeah, he was chairman. Now he's now he's chief strategist, chief strategist of the White for the president. Isn't of the United that your States. old job? So you're, yes, he's it, the new I didn't David. have the port. I didn't have as quite a, as expansive a portfolio as Steve Bannon, but uh, we shared a, a something of a title. Here. Yeah. Well, so that has been something where people it has prompted, um, you know, not just conservative, educated conservatives who like to read about, you know, the treatment of conservatism as an intellectual exercise, but it's been a very popular on through talk radio, but not just talk radio. Like I say, these websites mm-hmm. too. People have been able to choose their news, and um, and and they end up. I wouldn't even really call a lot of what some of these sites do as news. It's just commentary because they're not out there. They're not in Baghdad or or you know St. Louis or the state capital or anything uh, reporting these news, but they're just commenting on it. So these people, people that get their news as they see see it from these sites, and it validates the biases they bring to it. And it happens on the left, too, although the studies show that um, people who are self-described liberals or or left of center tend to get their their sources are more diverse. But people who are self-described conservatives tend to get all their news, or nearly all, from the likes of Fox and Breitbart and Mm -hmm. The Daily Caller and those sites. I, I I want to return to your narrative because you were in Washington for 30 years during a, an incredible sweep of history from mm-hmm. the, covering the Gingrich Congress, covering the Clinton years, uh, covering the 2000 election, and, and then uh, uh, Barack Obama, and covering budget and fiscal policies. And I, I want to get to that. But I do want to ask you, um, based on what you just said, and knowing what Trump uh, the Trump administration is 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 saying now about mm-hmm. the mainstream media. You just left the New York Times after uh, a long career there. Mm-hmm. How difficult is it going to be for those you left behind uh, to cover? You've covered several White mm-hmm. Houses. Uh, this fungibility of facts, the alternate alternative facts uh, argument. And this notion, uh, I mean, Matt Bai was here a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, and he said yeah. people just, uh, you know, because people have such a low opinion of the media, the, the Trump folks are kind of mining that. Right. And it puts a real pressure on the reporters who are covering day to day. It is real pressure. I've thought that some of the reporters who were embedded, for instance, with the Trump campaign for the last two years or year and a half, should you know get combat pay or or <laughs> or have post election therapy for you know PTSD and um did you put that in the suggestion box uh <laughs> no but I will and you know people don't realize that some of these reporters literally had to have security yeah no it was it was frightening for it, some of them it, it is because it, when the candidate when you have a group that's very whipped up and the candidate turns on a reporter right. and points to right. them right uh that's that's a Chilling, and I think it's meant yeah. to be chilling. And I've gotten, you know, over the years, really some nasty things. A couple of things during the years I was covering President Obama, I turned over to the Secret Service, and they sort of poo-pooed both of them because that's nothing compared to what they had seen. Um, but in, with Trump, it's like the the it's it really has been threatening. But 
having said that, I, you know, there's a part of me that wishes I hadn't sort of stepped away from the daily newspaper game because there is, on the one level, while there's a trepidation among reporters who are having to cover this on a daily basis, it's also energizing because this is what we got into it for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a there's sense a mission. of mission now. Yes. Uh, it is an ordinary times, and the role of a free media becomes yeah. uh, and scrutinizing and, and responsible. Right. I think got to put the emphasis on responsible is, is very, very yeah. important. And, you know, you mentioned my um, eight-plus years at the New York Times. Before that, I was 18 years at the Wall Street Journal yes. in Washington. And I, don't do any, I didn't do anything different at the New York Times than I had in all those years at um, – the Wall Street Journal or any place else. It's just, you know, reporting the facts and trying to put them in context and help people understand why their elected officials are doing what they're doing or why forces, you know, why an election turned out the way it did Mm -hmm. or whatever. And there's a, so I think people get up every day, go to bed too late, get up too early, given his tweets, trying to put, (laughs) you know, report the facts. And, And yes, there are people who now question what the facts really are, but you know, at so your 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 advice is do your job. Just oh, that's all we have to do. All yeah. we they have to do is do their job. And what I my worry is the economics of journalism. Mm. We still haven't figured out. You know, with advertising revenues down and paper papers uh, going out and being replaced by um, the internet, that it's we haven't figured out how to make, make a good uh, yeah good business out of this so i do worry that you know we talked about when i grew up toledo ohio had two newspapers and then i worked in texas i worked for the dallas morning news in austin and there were two newspapers in dallas and now we we thought the big problem back in the day was that cities were losing were were getting down to one newspaper now we're worried about cities keeping the one they've got well we're trying to figure out how to monetize podcasts, so we're going to take a short break here. <laughs> That's a great segue. We'll, we'll be right back with Jackie Combs. As I mentioned, you were there during a transition in Congress. You went to Washington in the in the early 80s, and you were there in the late 80s and early 90s when Newt Gingrich emerged. Uh, as uh, the Republican leader in Congress and ultimately the speaker in 94, kind of a stunning turnaround. Um, How I always think of him as a really significant figure in the change in American politics. As a student of Congress, how did things change uh, with Gingrich? You know, in what will, it, it will soon be true that I've covered politics and government for 40 years and in that 40 years, I would consider Newt Gingrich among the most, um, what's the word, the, the most significant people. Uh, impactful. There, impactful people there were. And if you're talking just about Congress alone, or as opposed to the White House, national politics, I think Gingrich could be the single most impactful figure. And... Not in a good way, and I don't mind saying that because there's plenty of Republicans who agree with me. Um, I think he coarsened the debate um, from the time I, I got to know him very early on. I came to Washington in 1984, and I worked for a publication called Congressional Quarterly, which published weekly. So I mm-hmm. had I had time. I got to know people. In fact, for a year, I worked for the Atlanta Constitution as its congressional reporter, and his congressional district mm-hmm. was in suburban Atlanta. Um, early on, he would um, he knew I had done a number of stories for Congressional Quarterly on ethics scrapes in Congress and people whose members of Congress who came before the Ethics Committee. So he began having his staff feed me things, and he had a staff member who did nothing, as far as I could tell, but dig dirt uh, on congressmen all over the country. And one time, I got a call about some congressman Lowry and some problem he was having back home and. Uh, alleged scandal in Washington well that's what I thought because there was a congressman a democratic congressman in Washington state named Mike Lowry so I thought that's what this young aide was telling me about because her boss Newt Gingrich had told her to tell me this but then she starts describing things in California and I'm realizing she's describing congressman Bill Lowry a republican of southern California and I said to her let me stop you do you know you're talking about 
a Republican congressman. I said, don't get me wrong. I'm all for equal opportunity dishing here. <laughs> uh, but um, she said, oh, let me get back to you. And of course, she never did. But she. <laughs> but that's the kind of. I, but he, I, I he, you're quickly saying that learned, he tried to undermine people who were. Right. Were he him. did not come to Congress to legislate or for public service. He came to break the Repo- Democrats' long hold and, and, you know, argue Democrats did have a hold on the House of Representatives yes. for too long. It would be 40 years. And he. Um, so Gingrich was a backbencher, bomb thrower, as we so often called him. But it got to the point where the Republicans, the more traditional Republicans, were so fed up themselves by the high-handed tactics of the congressional Democratic leaders that Gingrich's way started looking better and better. And so, you know, ultimately Gingrich got a hold on the leadership ladder. Um, and pushed and, the leader out, and Bob Michael. And pushed the leader out, Bob Michael, eventually. And um, it's interesting. I um, One time... Gingrich told me that uh, if only George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, could be a one-term president, House Republicans would finally get their chance to be a majority. And he was like openly, and and his he not only was openly lost on the Bush family. Yeah, no, it certainly wasn't, and uh, wasn't lost on the son when he would come on the scene either. But by that point, um, Gingrich Gingrich was was gone. But uh, he was more or less cheering for the defeat of uh, for Bill Clinton to defeat George H. W. Bush, and in fact, Gingrich did do a, n- a number of things to undercut the first President Bush. Um, and- well, Bush Bush signed a kind of historic budget agreement in right. 1990 that right. called for higher taxes, right. and Gingrich opposed it. Right, and in fact, was succeeded on the first vote in the House in bringing it down, so that. The Bush administration had to, uh, it had, and the combined Democratic and Republican leaders had to put it to a second vote. But so, but you know what? I'll be darned if Newt Gingrich didn't turn out to be right. Once Bill Clinton was president, the Dem- Republicans took advantage of the advantage. That- I think one thing is clear: whatever else you say about Gingrich, he's he is bright, he is insightful, right. he he is, uh, you know, he's a little. Uh, promiscuous uh, in terms of his intellectual uh, right. theories and so on, but he's uh, you know, and including you know, he was sort of ahead of the curve on the right. Trump, on the Trump exactly. Thing. And he, I mean, he he was a, pre- a, a prototype of. Let pre- me ask you about the presidents Trump. that you've covered because you covered uh, you. I don't know if you actually you covered you did, probably didn't cover the White House under George H. W. Bush, but you did cover it under Bill Clinton right. and. Uh, George uh, W. Bush and mm-hmm. and Barack Obama. Right. Tell me uh, if you described each of them as leaders. What? How would you describe them? Uh, you know, they each had their strengths and very different strengths. And I, um, Clinton, I came in in his second term, and so by then he was doing. He, you know, he had he had taken the training wheels off, and he'd gotten reelected. And best of all for him, the the economy was doing well, and we were um, heading towards budget surpluses. So he was riding pretty high until he self, uh, his self-inflicted wounds of um, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which broke about three months after I started covering him. But as a leader... Um, I think it was we sort point of out, this force of person. That siren is not a sound effect, but uh, <laughs> real life sounds in the city of Chicago. Yes, bring a little reality show here. Um, so well, that must have been something to cover the presidency yeah. during that that period of time. Oh my God! It was it you know because it's one of those things you never think you're going to see the impeachment of a president. You know that was Andrew Johnson in the 19th century, um, but it was. It was so interesting. I mean, you learn so much from these things. I and you know, Gingrich. We were talking about Newt Gingrich. He he. It was his idea to really push this to impeachment. And our polls, Wall Street Journal, NBC polls, among others, were consistently saying that two thirds of the country were opposed to impeaching President Clinton. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a story one. You know, time. I, I have to tell you. I just have to tell you this story. I went to a. I go to a deli called mm-hmm. Manny's here a lot mm-hmm. and there was an I elderly an elderly cashier there 
who said uh, to me, call me over the day that story broke. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I'm not here because I want to be. I'm here because I have to be. Uh, you know, I, I get Medicare, Social Security, my husband and I, but it's not enough because we're not doing, we're, we're not, we didn't save anything. We're not mm-hmm. well. Uh, so I'm here because I have to be, and I get a feeling this guy is Clinton's trying to help me. So why don't they get off his ass? Right. And uh, I don't care about his personal stuff. And I think that was underestimated. I then. absolutely. I mean, think he that. had a, he had a connection with those voters in places like Toledo. Right. Right. That was underestimated. Well, you know, that that's what I was going to say. That he had, he seemed to connect. He was the real deal. I um, I remember. I used to say to people that I met a lot of famous people in the years I was covering Congress, and then um, started covering White House. And nine times out of ten, I don't know what your experience is, but if you meet somebody famous, whether they're from Hollywood or a foreign capital or here or in uh, politics, you, they almost always disappoint both sort of physically and personally. Clinton does not disappoint. That You felt a charisma. Um, and it did seem, someone said if they wrote a book about him, uh, it would they'd call it rope line because he was so good at working the rope yeah. line. And, you know, everybody felt like he was, you know, he'd never shaken hands with anyone else. Like he just Yeah, that was his gift, them. yes. It was his gift. and I, But he also, throughout this scandal, continued to just go on and on about what he was doing for the economy, yeah. trying to help Americans, and wages were coming up, and the economy was no, he, well. He's a, he, is a, he is a deft and skillful communicator, and he does have a gift for taking complicated things, brilliant Absolutely. as he is, and, and colloquializing yeah. them. What about George, well, Seb, what, what about George W. So, Bush? Um, let me add one other thing about Clinton, though, because I think it goes to Trump. I can tie it. Is that, less, that impeachment was a lesson to me that no matter how popular a president is nationally, or if two-thirds of the country is saying they don't want, say, in this case, him to be impeached, the important thing is to look at what's happening in the members' districts. And in those Republicans' districts back then, in the late 90s, two-thirds of their constituents did want Clinton to be impeached in these very gerrymandered conservative Republican districts. I think the same is true you want to look at for Trump now in that he's got low national ratings, but the thing to watch is his popularity in those which districts. Which is quite high. Which is quite and, high. And, and people ask, why are why are these Republicans sticking with him? They're sticking mm-hmm. with him because right. he has uh, he has great sway with yeah. their constituents. Now, now George H. Uh, George W. Bush. On um, he, uh, what was striking to me, people, you know, so many people, uh, even those who were somewhat supportive of him would ask is he really as stupid as he seems or is he as stupid as people say he is and i would i always thought that was just so unfair and just so wrong yeah and i think i learned through i disagree with him on a lot but i had some interaction with him and i uh i I think that was yeah grossly unfair and i i came to say that, you know, I think there's like 15 ways. When, when I was a little girl growing up in Catholic schools and stuff, you, fe- you felt like people were either smart or they were stupid, and teachers saw it that way too. There was no spectrum almost. You, uh, um, your grades told which you were. But by the time I was covering politics and by then I thought, you know, presidents, most of all, there's not just one or two ways of showing you're smart. There's about 15 of them when it comes to politics. And Clinton was smart in about 13 of those ways. And, you know, the ways in which he wasn't smart were like self-awareness and self-control. Yeah, but not um, insignificant categories. Not, <laughs> as it turned out. Yeah. And Bush, I used to say, he's smart in about 9 or 10 of the 15. You know, he doesn't have a lot of curiosity. He's not an intellectual um, but he was he got people uh, better and better than a lot of Republicans did. And and you know, it's really interesting now that we've got Trump to see how different what a different vision George W. Bush had for the Republican Party back then because he He was for immigration reform. Right. He was a free trader. Absolutely. Um, and he was for, you know, educa federal role in education. Educa- yeah. And um, so these are these are uh, disqualifying right. 
within the Republican Party right. today or much of the Republican Party. You know, and when he tried to remake Social Security and sort of partially privatize it, even that policy, which of course was doomed because uh, his re- Republicans wouldn't go along given its unpopularity. But the reason he went after that was a large part of it was because they thought it would appeal to Latino Americans because they were savers and um, would see that this, you know, would be a good way for them to benefit from investing their own money rather than just uh, letting the government do it. You, what about uh, what about the guy I work for, uh, Barack Obama? Yeah. You know, he... Um, I want to ask you, by the way, about two stories you wrote about him. Uh-oh. Uh, uh, but tell me what your overall view was, and I'll ask you about those stories. Well, I mean, clearly yeah, he was... Um, charismatic and just so different and historic i really didn't think uh wasn't i didn't think america was ready to elect a, a black president um and uh except early on i'm speaking by the time he became known to the country i really do think a lot of people saw him enough people saw him as you know without seeing color well, and, including people in your old neighborhood and uh, some others. I mean, he. What's interesting about the 2016 election is there were there there was a significant cohort of Obama Trump voters. People yeah. would vote for Obama and yeah. vote for Trump because they both represented change from change. the status quo. Right, and you probably are with me that I don't find that such when people marvel that there could be people that voted for Trump in two thousand. I mean, Obama in two thousand eight and Trump in twenty sixteen. I don't find that all that contradictory or hard mm-hmm. to understand, really, yeah. at all. But I thought, you know, uh, that Barack Obama was so, um, you know, he benefited. He he was so rational. I hate to say cool, but uh, steady, con- especially considering the crisis he inherited when he came in. I just can't um, say enough about his how he handled himself and his presidency um, having come in in crisis. I think, and I also, um, along those lines, am uh, more forgiving than a lot of people about this idea that he didn't work Congress hard enough. I was going to ask you about that, being a student of Congress. Yeah, um, I think it underestimates uh, what I'd seen as the um, hardening of the Republicans and their willingness to obstruct. We now know that on the night of the inaugural, about 15 Republican leaders got together over dinner in Washington and planned to um, obstruct him at every turn so that by the midterm elections he would be seen as a failed president. And um, one thing I agree, Obama likes to say that no amount of like uh, bourbon on the rocks was going to make Mitch McConnell um, no, he made a strategic decision. The thing that's, you know, now you see Democrats uh, uh, saying, well, we've we got to start thinking about impeachment, and so two right. weeks in. And, right. And there is this, you do worry about this mad cycle of mutual destruction, oh, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, and oh, it's funny that o- Obama himself seems to represent such a break from that mentality, and yet he inadvertently um, encouraged it that by the bringing out for, you know, inciting a hate in people and, a, and in some people that was picked up in conservative media or it was sort of a chicken and the egg, which came first. The, and do you think he did that? I mean, was that his? I do not, but I it's, there's a plenty of people that would, would argue that. I don't think... Um, yeah, it just, he did, he did, and, you know, I can, I can explain why, and I personally was a part of it, but yeah. he took on some pretty bold issues, the exactly. principally the Affordable Care Act, but also the things he had to do because of the economic crisis right. that gave fodder to his opponents. Um, but, but you know, so where I, I will I'm proud that he him, did them. But. Yeah, and having said that there was no, that, you know, Mitch McConnell was not going to come around no matter how many bourbon on the rocks got poured at the White House, I do think that President Obama could have done a lot more to work the personal angle. I realize he wanted to spend, have sort of a normal family life in the evenings. But I saw, you know, people like to, uh, revisionist history has it that 
Bill Clinton did a lot of that work in Congress, and I remember covering Congress at the time how many complaints I heard from both parties that Clinton both did not do it enough, and when he did have people over, he did all the talking. And um, and I also, you know, complaints from the from the people, his aides who were his liaisons to Congress who just threw up their hands a lot. Anyway, Barack Obama could have done more, and I also think, and I one thing I would have confessed to being a little personally disappointed in, even as aware as I am about the premium on a president's time, and especially a president who comes to office in the midst of a crisis, is he didn't go enough to those parts of the country that were suspicious or even outright opposed to him. And I think he he had shown in his 2007-2008 presidential campaign initially he had gone into places that had not seen a Democratic presidential and candidate. And in fact, one pl- Indiana is a good example Absolutely. of a state that he won that Republicans and, hadn't won in decades. And, you know, here I'm talking to, I'm sitting across from the chief strategist here, but I still don't understand why he didn't do more of that. And maybe it is as simple as there just wasn't time and he had to prioritize his travel, but yeah. I think it would have helped. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair criticism. I think there's a lot of math involved as to where the votes were to win re-election. Right. Uh, but uh, the two stories I wanted to ask you about were uh, one about a photo that was taken of a little boy, a uh, little African-American child who came in with his parents uh, to say goodbye. The, the father had worked at the White House and he was leaving the White House. Yeah. And the president was kneeling over. I have that photo on my wall uh, uh and uh, but uh, talk about that and what it meant. You know, why you decided to write that story? If I had to pick one story I've done in thirty-eight years, that would be my favorite. And it wasn't even that. In the end, it was only about eight hundred words, and a standard story is like eleven or twelve hundred words. What happened was, you know, I'd passed through the w- part of the West Wing um, for two, three years of covering. President Obama. And there's, as you know, there's under all presidents, I think going back to at least Gerald Ford, the White House photographers would put photos and of recent photos of something the president had done, pictures of the president with crowds, really, you know, casual shots. And um, they would change uh, monthly or so, it seemed, but they changed frequently with the latest shots from the president mm-hmm. on the road or with foreign right. leaders or with constituents. And this one photo of the president in the Oval Office with this little black child stayed. And it had stayed and stayed. In fact, if anything, I kick myself I didn't get to this story sooner. And I re- I started. Picture was the president the bowing president, at the waist, right, and looks, the little, and the child touching exactly. his head. Exactly. And to me, I didn't know the story behind the picture, but to me, it sort of captured something we had begun to take for granted with Barack Obama having been elected president, and that's the power of having a black man as president for a, a little black child. And, you know, we, t- we talked about Mary Tyler Moore, this fictional character, and the impact she had on me mm-hmm. um, as a symbol. I mean, imagine. Uh, so I, it really drove it home to me. So I wanted to get behind that picture. And it's so I got this story. Um, but it took a long time. I'll tell you that. The, the White House, there were people who charged some sort of Obama haters and New York Times haters who, who wrote to me after that story appeared, suggesting that I was just like um, had been spoon-fed by the Obama White House to get out a story that reflected on But you had to wrestle the information. I had to fight to get you guys to give it up. Did you find a little boy and his parents? I found him. Uh, it took a while, and um, but I, and I can't really remember how I found them, but I found them, and the father um, had been working for the National Security Council as an aide for a stint and was um, now – was overseas. I think he might have been posted by now in Afghanistan. And that picture was taken because he was leaving the NSC to go to the foreign posting in Afghanistan. And so, as you know, the president will have people who are leaving his staff at Mm -hmm. every level can bring their family in and get their photo taken. And that's what was happening on this day. And so um, the parents stood off to the side and the older brother, who I think was seven at the time, 
And the parents had encouraged them to think of a question they could ask the president. And But the parents didn't ask what the question would be. And um, Jacob, who was the little boy's name, Jacob Philadelphia, five years old at the time, uh, when it was time for his question, he looked at President Obama and said, I want to know if your hair feels like mine. I mean, I think my heart stopped when I heard that was the story behind this picture. And the president said, bent down, and that's where you see him bending mm-hmm. down so that Jacob can touch his hair. And and Jacob hesitated. I mean, he was, and, you know, this is not something he was very, they're very polite kids. The, I, mm-hmm. I spent a Easter Sunday with them, so I very strictly raised. And he hesitated, and the president said, come on, dude, touch it. <laughs> and so he did. And he says, what do you think? He says, yeah, it feels like mine. And it was just, you know, um, it's at the risk of, it, it's it's stereotypical maybe, but it's a truth that um, hair is important to black people. And it's a very, uh, and it was a very, it just sort of captured. Well, more than that, in one anecdote, it did speak to a little boy calculating yeah. that this guy's like me. Oh, it was the and, ultimate. And, and ho- hopefully what it meant to him and to a lot of other kids is, I could be here yeah. too someday. You know, I'm I'm going to keep up with that family because I want to yeah. know what happens to Jacob. Yeah. He may be working there someday. Yeah. Jackie Combs, it's been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your time at the Institute of Politics and this conversation. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.